Well, the external medical would go into like a medical device, like a product, like say an IV pump or some kind of machine that would be outside of the body. And then internal medical is implantables, stuff that is going to live inside the body, meaning they're going to, you know, attach a, a bone plate or something to your ankle and they screw a couple screws in there and they stay in there forever. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Our guest on the show today is Sean Gaskin, owner of Swiss Technologies of New England, a 17-employee Swiss shop. Sean started his company over 20 years ago with one L20 citizen making parts out of silver for Tiffany and Company. Over the years, his company has grown into a diversified shop doing a significant amount of medical work. If you want to learn about the medical Swiss components business, I recommend you check out this interview. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am very honored to be with Sean Gaskin, founder and owner of Swiss Technologies New England and Stone Medical, right outside Boston in Plainville, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. I've known Sean a few years now um, because he is in the Swiss business. And so we met him through Graf Pinkert. And um that's what we're going to be focusing on today, Swiss and medical in particular. So I want to learn a lot about you and your story. But first, just to get a good background, what is Swiss Technologies of New England? Just briefly, what do you guys make? Um, and then, then we'll go into you and we'll go into the history and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, Swiss Technologies of New England. Um, I started in 2001. We, um, we basically, I would say 70% of what we do is uh, medical, either device or internal medical implantables. Um, that's the focus of where we're trying to move the business to is more medical. Interesting. 70%. Okay. Yeah. So we, so we, yeah, we do, you know, aerospace parts, you know, a little bit of automotive parts, fiber optic parts. We do a mix of everything. I mean, if somebody's going to come to me with the print, we're going to quote it. Got you. Okay. And the equipment you use, it's mainly citizens, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's mainly citizens. Uh, we have um, 17 citizens, 14 of which are uh, 20 millimeter machines, and we have three 32 millimeter machines. Cool. Okay. Now I want to get you know a little bit of your backstory, and that gives us a good picture 
of Swiss technologies. So how did you get into Swiss machining? Right out of high school, I, did. I wasn't a kid that was going to go to college. So I went and worked at a jewelry factory, which one of my father's friends uh, owned. It was the only thing I really had going for me is that one of my father's friends that he was in the Marine Corps with owned the, owned the um, business. And uh, they had bought a Citizens uh, screw machine in 1997 L20, which I still own and still running here today. 1997 and you're still running it today? Still running it today. You know, we run it 10, 10, 15 hours a day and it still still makes good parts. And that is a type seven? And it's actually an L, L520. It's a type five. And, and yeah, so, so I started in the jewelry business. They bought a Citizens, this, this particular Citizens L20. And we moved it into a shop down in uh, Rhode Island where my boss had made a deal with a, with a shop owner to train me. He was going to bring the machine into his facility and he would have a, you know, basically a free employee. And when we weren't using the machine and at the time we were probably only using it seven to 10 hours a week, um, they could use the machine for free to make their part. So it was a win-win situation for both the, the business owner and my current Boss. And what were you making exactly on the machine? Most of the stuff we were making was jewelry component parts for uh, Tiffany and Company, and um, a lot of stuff for um, the company's name was New England Sterling, and no longer they've been liquidated. Somebody bought them and changed the name. But um, we, yeah, we made a lot of keyring parts, pill boxes, stolen silver whistles, all types of you know, novelty type gift items that you could make on anything that I could make on a Swiss screw machine. What material were you putting on the Swiss machine to make the jewelry? At, at the time, it was mostly sterling silver, 925 sterling silver. So it's basically 92.5% sterling silver when they cut it with some other stuff to make it a little bit harder so that you can machine it. What's that like um, machining silver um, or a silver alloy? compared to i don't know stainless or titanium or yeah i would say it's kind of a cross between aluminum and titanium you know it chips kind of like aluminum but it, it's a little bit um abrasive like titanium so it's kind of in between there interesting because i would think titanium i think like hard as possible and aluminum i think soft yeah, I mean exactly, it, and that's what it is. It's in between that hardness, and it and it chips kind of like the two of them. It does hold heat into it, you know, kind of like you know copper also. So it's like copper, aluminum, titanium type. I would Interesting. say if you had to pick one. It was it's most like copper. All right, so you're making jewelry. What in your early twenties? And yeah, I was probably at the time maybe twenty five at the time. I think like 29 or so when I started my business. Okay. So you, you were going at it for a while, making a lot of stuff, and then you just decided, all right, I think I can do this on my own. Is that kind of what happened? Yeah. The, the, the owner of the company, they didn't have enough work to keep the machine busy, not even 40 hours a week. So mm -hmm. come to me and said on Fridays, you can go out and you know, try to bring in product for the machine and he would pay me a 15% commission on anything that I brought in. And I was doing that at the time. And then me and my wife had uh, just gotten married, just bought a house, no kids. And it was a good time to roll the dice. So I went to my boss and told him that I wanted to uh, do it on my own. I would train somebody on the machine. And he says, uh, you know, he said that we, we wouldn't be able to find anybody trained that quick. Why don't you, yeah. Uh, 
buy the equipment off of us and stuff. And we would give, you know, I would do his product for reduced cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I did. But at the time I had just bought a house. And, uh, I went to a bank and they just laughed at me. Why? You had the house as collateral. Yeah. Yeah. 3% down on it. Yeah. <laughs> to go to him and say, Hey, I'm going to start a, a screw machine. Oh, three, 3% down on the house. <laughs> How do you yeah. buy a house with 3% down? Oh Yeah. Yeah, when you owner occupied, at least I did at the time. You can buy a house and only put three percent down. Yeah, that shows what I know about real I think, estate. I think I think that was first time buyer or something. I know I put three percent down, so when I bought it, but uh, I didn't have the money, so my parents took a home equity loan out on their house and loaned me forty thousand dollars for a down payment for down. forty forty thousand. Forty thousand, yeah. So that was the one third down. And um, the company financed the other 80000 for me after I gave them the one-third down. And basically, you know, at that point started to run product for the jewelry company. And I was, I was, you know, opened up the Thomas Register and kind of started thumbing through the Thomas Register at the time. They had books. It wasn't, there was nothing online at the time. Yeah. And I thumbed through and started looking for anything I could that possibly could use a screw machine part. So it sounds like you're some, you're a decent salesperson then too. Yeah, I would say that's one of my strengths. You know, I'm a good people person. You know, I'm pretty good on the phone talking to people. I try to have good integrity and, and be honest to the, to the customer if you can't do it and, you know, be upfront with them. Yeah, I'm sure people appreciate that. There's plenty of uh, over-promisers out there. Um, okay, so you built the business. You were making a lot of parts for your old boss, the jewelry company, and then you started diversifying. Yeah, um, they came to me at one time, and they they said that um, they had a six month inventory. So I went into the shop every single day for a week and never turned my machine on. So when you only have one machine, and you're not, and you and you got to make payments on it and stuff, and you only turn it, in a, you're not even turning it on for a whole week. You know, you're backed into a corner, you got to come out swinging. So I really upped the sales at that time, which is tough because you really can't do sales when you have one machine. Yes. Because if 90% of the time or 95% of the time, how are you going to, I mean, I was running, I was sleeping by the machine. I didn't even have an auto loader on this machine. So there was Uh-oh. a single loader, it was an SMW single loader. And it was just, you had to run, you know, one, one bar at a time. And when I went home, I'd go home, I'd set an egg timer, like a little egg timer at my house. And, you know, if I knew the bar was an hour bar change, I'd set the egg timer. When the egg timer went off, I'd drive down and change another bar. And I did that all night long. Well, you were clearly committed and are committed to your business. Would you say that you are passionate about Swiss machining or are you more passionate about your business than just making it work? Definitely. I'm a, I'm a guy that likes to get in the oil, you know, so I love the machining part of it. And that's, that's my strength. I mean, I'm not a guy that really likes to sit behind the desk. I really like to get out on the floor with the guys and try to help them train them, you know, problem solving, doing all the engineering. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my love of the businesses you know, the manufacturing and, 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 the, and the machines themselves. Do you feel like, just like when you started, do you feel like this spreads you thin because you want to get into the trenches yet you also need to manage? Yeah, it gets, it gets tough. I mean, you know, the, 
the famous saying is generals aren't on the front line. So yeah, you try you try to you know manage from the back, and there's certain parts of business that you don't like. You know, you don't you know it's it's tough sometimes dealing with employees and stuff like that. But it's it's part of it. That's what I signed up for. Sure, sure. Let's go a little bit further into the evolution of your business because I just think it's fascinating. Um, so you started getting other business and then one of your biggest parts for a little while was making parts for ATM machines. Yes. Um, at the time we were making all the rollers and shafting for uh, D-Bold. If you go to any bank, there's, there's two major manufacturers of um, ATM machines. It's NCR and, and D-Bold. Okay. I was doing parts for a brand new ATM and D-Bold and it was, it was good. I went from a, a $450,000 company to like a $2.3, $2.4 million company in a, a single purchase order. Wow. And what, how, what percentage of your stuff was for these ATM machines? Oh, uh, it was probably 60, 70% of my business at the time. And every time I've ever been in a situation like that, it never ends well. But you were just sort of seduced by, you know, the, the business is too good. How how can I question this? Yeah, how can you diversify? I mean, everybody says that they don't want that, but what do you say when they give in you work? You don't say no. <laughs> you try to, if it goes away, you try to, you know, go back out and pound more doors down. So if you could go back, if you had to give yourself advice back then when you had this awesome job and just growing and kicking ass, what would you do differently? Would you have kept that job, but then gone out and found other work? Would you kind of reduce that bit of work? Yeah, I think I would have, but it was time because I didn't want to, you know, we, we were buying so much equipment and stuff. You know, we bought two or three machines a year for three years or so. So I had a lot of debt. So I, I kind of had to deliver to this customer. One of the things that I would do different was probably I would have done a little bit different with the training aspect of my guys because when this this particular job it was all super super high volume. Okay. So machines were set up and they were blanket orders like twelve month blanket orders. So if you know if a machine was if you had three machines down you could keep running one run another month's worth of inventory. So you know as far as all the machines they were running all the time there wasn't a lot of downtime. Mm -hmm. In that my guys didn't get trained very well. Um, as far as doing setups and stuff, because I had one setup guy and I could do it with one setup guy with the high volume. So now when things changed and that business went away, it really hurt me bad because my, now my employees weren't trained. Interesting. Well, that's, that is definitely something, um, an important learning experience. So, okay. So then you got kind of bitten the ass by not being diversified. What, what happened to the ATM parts? Yeah. So, so in 2015, they, you know, when they build these ATMs, they have a five, six year shelf life and then they stop building a new ATM, you know, and basically what happened is from 09 to like 2015, they ran this ATM and then they went to go design a new one. And at that time they would, you know, they were going to make, going to get all the component parts in China. Yeah. Big surprise. Yeah. Big surprise. So that, you know, I basically almost 35% of my business was just gone. Like the revenue was gone. Um, we hit the pavement hard running and basically did a sales and marketing program. And at that time, when I was doing the sales and marketing, the people that were calling and stuff, they all wanted us to be ISO. 
9001. Okay. So at that time, I did a sales and marketing, and we became ISO 9001, which helped. That got me into a lot of doors for some of the bigger companies, um, and that helped. Sure. We, you know, we went up six, 2016, 2017, 2018. And then in 18, what is that? I, I, I should know this by now, but what are the different ISOs for? Is that one for medical or aerospace or? No, you know, 9,001 is just, a, you know, you're telling your customer that you have somebody coming in that's auditing you every single year to have that ISO certification. And then, like I said, in I think it was 2018, we went and got ISO 13485 certified, which is the medical certification, which is a, a, an overhauling of your business, basically. So how much work and money and effort is it to get that certification? Well, it's a lot. I mean, depends on your revenue and how many employees you have, what you pay. But, you know, between the insurance part of it, because... How many employees do you have? 17? 17, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so it all depends on that. It's kind of like workman's comp type deal. Like workman's comp, you pay on, you know, what your revenue dollars are, similar to ISO 13485. So as you're growing, you pay more, a little bit more. But I think think maybe the ISO certifications are maybe 25,000 a year for us or so. Hey, listeners, I first just want to say thank you for tuning in. I know you could be spending your time doing a whole bunch of other things right now. I'm trying hard to build our audience for this podcast, and as you might imagine, it's not easy. Rather than just ask you to rate and review the show, which I would love if you did, I want to try something different. I would be eternally grateful if you could stop this episode for a moment and think of one person who would enjoy the show, and then send them a text message to recommend it. Okay, I will now assume you've taken care of that. Back to the show. So you got ISO certified, and you talked to a lot of people. Some people wish they could get into the medical business. Some people are in it. Usually it seems like the ones I know that are in it somehow got some cool hookup from somewhere. They Somebody knew somebody because they used to work for another company, et cetera. How did you break into the medical business? Actually, to be honest with you, I had, um, there was a local company, which I'm not going to mention their name, but, but there's a, there was a local company that did a lot of medical manufacturing and they had a capacity issue. So when they had the capacity issue, they had contacted one of the citizens salesmen and the salesman basically came to me and said, Hey, I got this customer that mm. we went to. They have a capacity issue. They have no more room to add any more machines. Could you t- eat up some of this capacity? And so we did. And then at that point, I realized, you know, I'm looking at a pot and saying, oh, this thing's going to be like a $3 pot. Then they basically came out and said, if you, you know, if you can do this under $12 a piece, then, you know, we, we can give you the job. And I was like, geez, I got I need to get into more of this work. <laughs> You know, right. because now we have jobbing at the time, maybe I was jobbing my machines at fifty, sixty dollars an hour and they're at a hundred and twenty five, hundred and fifty dollars an hour. Yeah. But you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. So now let's let's talk about that. So you're getting these sweet jobs, you're doing 
external medical parts, right? Yeah, well, actually, this this particular customer here was internal medical parts. It was um, stretcher anchors and bone screws and stuff. Let's like make that. a definition for people out there. So, if you're making medical, there's external and internal. What's the difference? Well, the external medical would go into like a medical device, like a product, like let's say an IV pump or some kind of machine that would be outside of the body. Then internal medical is implantables stuff that is going to live inside the body, meaning a bone screw, they're going to, you know, attach a, a bone plate or something to your ankle and they screw a couple screws in there and they stay in there forever. So that, that so they're both lucrative, right? External is also lucrative, right? Yes. External is lucrative. It probably is not as lucrative as internal because there's a lot more that goes into it. I mean, you got to have the insurance, uh, a lot more insurance. And then, then the pool of that'll insure you is really small with implantables there's not four or five insurance companies in the country that'll insure you four or five insurance companies wow and what do you pay a year like twenty five thousand? yeah 25 i think it's somewhere around twenty five thousand a year now and again that all depends on revenue what does that cover that twenty five thousand for you well, it just covers all your liability. You know, I have to look to see what the umbrella policy is on that, like how many how many millions of dollars. But I mean, you have to have a lot, obviously, if you have some kind of a recall or something like that. I mean, if you make a bone screw and it's, I don't know, somebody doesn't have a good reaction to it. Yeah, so let's say you by accident, they load the wrong material in there and they make a, you know, a bone screw with coal rolled steel, you know, rather than titanium. <laughs> you know, that, you know, that... <laughs> You have to do is have one or two in there, and then that recalls everything. You've heard of that happening? We've put stuff into place with that now, where if we're going to make any kinds of bone screws or something, we specially grind the material to certain sizes, so there's absolutely no way that it can get mixed up. So let's say we, you know, if we're making a quarter-inch bone screw or something, we'll we'll grind the stock to two hundred and forty-five thousandths. Sellers grind it so that you grind it in house. No, we don't do the grinding. We send it out. Oh, okay. So we send all that out, but we make it an oddball size on purpose to. I mean, even though we have the stuff in place, that way they're not going to be able to load a quarter inch bar into a, a two forty five guide bushing. So if they if somehow there was any kind of a mix up, that's that's kind of like the last resort. Does that cost you more money to do that, though? It does. But titanium, you have to grind anyway. I mean, titanium doesn't really like guide bushings. It, it tends to um, the carbide. It wants to stick to it. So you want to you can't use I mean, even most of the manufacturers now where you buy titanium, it's all centralized ground when even when you buy it. Right. I was just saying, if you're buying sort of specials. Yeah, it's not really because, you know, I'm buying regular sizes like quarter inch and having them grind five thousandths off of it. It does get a little expensive on your collets and your guide bushings and your pusher collets for your bar loader because you're going to have to, you know, get different sizes. But for the cost of what it's going to cost you to do that, to have a, you know, the right frame of mind, knowing that nothing's going out the door that's made out of the wrong material. If you had advice for first, just for somebody who wanted to get into the Swiss business and then advice for somebody who wanted to get into medical 
first start with the Swiss, what would you say? I mean, we sell machines from Graf Pinker to various startups. It's kind of a thing we're seeing the most right now. People, you know, in a way, sort of like you. They start with one yeah. Swiss machine. It's something that, you know, you can be almost a one-man band and start making parts out of your garage. There's different ways to start. You could start like that or you could make a bigger investment. What advice do you have for somebody who wants to get into this business? My advice to them would be, um, be careful. Bigger is not necessarily better. Mm. Say, stay at that niche size, maybe three or four employees, four to six machines. Sometimes it's what you have to deal with to get to the size where I'm at. Sometimes, you know, your, your profitability goes down and then your headaches go way up. And some people would say you're small. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they would. I mean, they would say that small. And, and I mean, we're at a tough size that 15 to 20, 25 employees, once you get over that, then it gets, it starts getting a little bit better because you have everything in place right now. We have a full engineering department. We have a full quality manager. We don't have to add really another quality manager. So we have all the expenses at a little bit smaller size. 485 shop to only have 17 people. That's a big financial drain, but we wouldn't have to add too many more dollars to get it where we would almost double in size. Oh, interesting. Okay. So do you have ambitions to double in size if you could find the right people? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we have, I think a lot of the stuff today and the, the jobs that we're looking at now, we're going to go with all automation on them. Now, robots, mm. Cleaning, automatic offsetting of the machines so you can run, you know, 24 7 with nobody in the building. You know, robots will grab the pot, clean the pot, measure the pot on a CMM, automatically offset the machine. So, I mean, that's the way that everything's going, but you have to have the volume and the dollars to do that. Wow. And what are you doing about, you know, employee capacity right now? And you, you found some people to hire recently? Yeah. So, what I found out is a lot of, a lot of the shops now have started to get some of them, even some of the medical, you know, the big medical shops that are around. This is kind of a pretty good size hub up here for Swiss machining and medical manufacturing up here. And we're finding guys that we can bring in for four or five hours that will moonlight at night from these companies that um, maybe they cut their overtime off. So, you know, they're, they're starting to you know, put, pump the brakes a little bit with, you know, inflation and, you know, interest rates, they're trying to slow the economy. I don't personally see that. I see that it's, we're still going pretty good here. Gangbusters, maybe the RFQs are down a little bit, but it's, it's still good. We got a ton of backlog. I'm glad. Well, is medical something that's inelastic though? I mean, are are people always going to, I mean, they're always going to need bone screws, right? That's why it's uh, the medical stuff is a little bit less recession proof. Although we see it get hurt with COVID, you know what I right. mean? Right. Because they basically, all these medical companies were concentrating everything on COVID. So a lot of the medical stuff got really, really slow. Yeah. Well, that was an interesting new special case for, <laughs> for the world. Um, okay. So that's for the Swiss business. It sounds like you've got some really good wisdom there. What about somebody who's got some talent, they've got some machines and they say, you know, I was learning about Sean Gaskin's business and um, I want a piece of that. Yeah. Well, on the medical manufacturing side, it's on the outside, it looks easy, 
but it's it's not mm-hmm. one you got to have the 13485 certification and there's a lot of other stuff that goes involved in it. a lot of these medical OEM shops they want you to have everything internal so that you can control your lead times meaning they want you to have the anodizing the passiving the deburring they want your you know certified clean line where you're cleaning your parts they want all that stuff to be in house laser mocking they want they want you to be able to manufacture the complete part to them and but you don't have that and yet you you're able to get this work yeah we are but we i mean it's still it's still a fight you know it's still fighting and then they and then again you got you got to look at the fda approval on stuff when a new product line comes out there's some of them that we're four and a half years in and we haven't got production yet whoa okay so first thing though you said you have to have a lot of stuff in house, but if you were giving somebody advice, wants to break in, obviously they're not going to like, you know, get a lot of stuff like that in house. They probably want to start smaller, right? How do you get your first foot in the door? I think you start with a tier two supplier, doing something for somebody as a tier two supplier, and then you work your way in that way. But it's definitely a fight. I mean, we're we started doing this in 2018 and we're still not where we want to be with, you know, as far as definitely as implantables go, we want, we want to be doing a lot more implantables than what we're doing right now. So what's your ambition? Ambition. on what, what? I mean, like, so you say you want to do a lot more. What, what are you, how much are you doing right now? And what do you, what would you like to be doing? We're, we're doing like three and a half million right now in revenue. And I'd like to get that up to like six million, um, and I think we can do that adding too much more equipment if we break into the you know implantables. You know, we're still doing a lot of like industrial type work, which you're competing with guys like you said that are starting out of their garage that have one or two machines in their garage. And there's no way with my overhead I'm going to be able to compete with those guys. But there's there's you know the you know my customers. If they got some guy that's, you know, doing work for $45, $50 an hour, I just can't do that. Yeah. And that's where the, that's where you got to kind of separate yourself from the competition and, and try to go for the, the um, parts that you need to make to make that higher, higher dollar work. Right. Right. You told me or when we were talking before, you're never going to find anybody as good as you. You're never going to find another you. Yeah, I've been looking for for 21 years, and, and you're never going to find you. If you're looking, if you think that a guy's going to walk in the door, it's going to be you. That is never going to happen. Sure, sure. But I mean, do you think that you know a, a qualified person, maybe uh, another brilliant person, would be able to take the reins and run your company, or is it more right now without you, without your brains, you don't have much? No, I wouldn't say that. I, I think uh, the guys that I have here now, we, we have the best crew that I've ever had here right now. Um, I think I've learned a lot of lessons over the years that you have to spend time on training, even if it costs you money, even if, a, you know, machine's not going to run, you know, let them play with it. Let them, it's a pot. Why don't you try to light program this pot? You know, it might be only a two-step turn with a hole in it with a center drill and a drill, but it gets them started on, you know, doing light programming and being able to edit at the machine and, and you know you gotta you gotta spend time on training. That's what all these ISOs are. You know, even with thirteen forty five and stuff, it's all training, training records, updating the training records. You have to make sure that you're keeping up with training. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I heard like a quote from uh, Richard Branson. He said, you want to train somebody so well that, or get somebody so qualified that they could take your job. Yeah. I hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, it's always, there's always that thing that they don't have the skin in the game that I have too. I mean, that's the big thing. You know, I have to have that mentality that I can't fail when my family needs me not to fail. And I, you know, and when you're hiring somebody, they can always turn around and walk out the door and go to another shop. That's true. That's yeah, true. So they don't have the skin in the game that, you know, somebody that's the owner does. So how often are you on the floor um, problem solving, helping with setups? Yeah, I would say probably two and a half hours a day, two hours a day. Today, I was a little bit longer. I was like four hours on the floor. We were, we were trying to, uh, we had a job that had an eight finish on the inside of a part and I had to try to figure out how to get the finish right. Mm -hmm. What do you gain the most by being on the floor? I mean, obviously you feel like you are one of the most qualified people, if not the most qualified people down there. Is it partly just being immersed in the business? Yeah, I think it's good morale for the guys too. I mean, they like to have you out on the floor. They get a little bit, you know, if, if if I'm training from, you know, the most qualified person in the whole building, I think in, they, they like to see you on the floor. These, you know, they want they want you in the trenches with them. Are you a micromanager? Uh, definitely not. Okay. I probably, it's probably one of my weaknesses that I should micromanage a little bit better than I do. Interesting. Just a few more questions. Uh, you know, that brings me to one, one thing I like to talk about. Comfort zone. What, what is your comfort zone? What, is there a, a comfort zone you're trying to get out of? That's a good question. Um, not really. I mean, I, I, I'm happy with where I am. I, there's not a whole lot that I would do, do different than what I've done. And again, I, I, I think one of the main things that I wish I had done, I wish I probably would have stayed a little bit smaller in size, meaning, you know, six machines or so. You know, then it gives you less employees and then, you know, under six employees. So why don't you why don't you shrink? Why don't you reduce your size? Um, I wouldn't say that's going to that, that wouldn't be out of the question in the future. Um, I think we've gotten in this far. And I think I owe it to the employees to try to, you know, blow the doors off the place. But who knows if the economy goes down a little bit? That's definitely an option. I mean, we've done good. I built this business where we've never used a line of credit ever. You financed machines, but you didn't use a yeah, line. Oh so, yeah, I financed. You know, yeah, obviously a dollar bio five. You know, five years or either four or five years. If I buy a used piece of equipment, I, I usually do a four year note on that. And then if I buy something, it's usually five. So yeah, we'll, we'll lease machines, but even that. I usually try to keep it with a couple machines, two or three machine payments, and that's it at a time. That's smart. Yeah, if you, if you grow slow, then you're strong. You try to go too fast and you try to add too much equipment. I've seen that happen to so many people. And then next thing you know... There's an auction. Who, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Auction. And who knows what's going to be happening 12 months from now. You know, the economy could be... I think it's still going to be pretty good, um, but you never know. And I think the machine industry sees it first. Or lab. I mean, obviously, if we're machining product and it, it's busy for us, it's going to take, what, six to 12 months for that product to hit, you know, to get all the way through where it's sold. So, I, I mean, if I, if you got every machine shop that's busy, I think the economy is still going to be pretty good for, a, for a, a good amount of time. So you have kids, right? 
Yes, I have two. I have a, a daughter that's a freshman at Bryan College, and I got a son that's a going to be a senior in high school. And do they have any desire to be in the business? And how would you feel about them going in the business? Um, if they wanted to, I just think it's too late now. I think that if they wanted to get involved in the business, they should have been here getting covered in oil, uh, you know, for the last four or five years or so. So, I mean, it's a, it's a tough business and I don't know if they would be qualified for, for this business. <laughs> and I think, I think that's probably another mistake I made. I think I, I think my kids kind of grew up as a silver spoon kid a little bit more than I would, than I did. That's for sure. I mean, I grew up in a three bedroom split level with a three bedroom with seven people living in the house, five kids. I had a room that was like 10 by 12 with a bunk bed on one side and another bed. I mean, I share it, shared it with two other brothers. So we came from, and then all three of my brothers all had their own business. Wow. Interesting. Do you have anything else you want to say to uh, the people of the world before we wrap this up? I would just say, don't wait, go and do it. Even if you have to work at a job. And I know a lot of people, in fact, a good buddy of mine that I've been trying to get to come work for me. He just bought an old Haas milling machine and put it in his garage, you know, and he's just moonlighting at night and, you know, go slow and get a couple of customers. And maybe that's just enough to make you, you know, happy and make enough money on the side where you can, I mean, there's a lot of companies out there that are looking for to cut costs and stuff. And, you know, not everybody has to be an ISO 9001 shop or an ISO 13485 shop. There's, there's plenty of work out there for the guy that's in his garage. Fantastic. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. 